All right. Well, as we continue our uh, You Pick the Sermon Summer Series, the question on the table for today is uh, when is the rapture going to happen and when, what, what do we do with this thing that we call the millennium? Uh, all of you guys familiar with the two words that I just used? Give me a head nod if you are. You've heard the word tribulation before. You've heard the word rapture before. You've heard the word millennium before. Any of you feel pretty comfortable with those three things? If I got... Dr. Tarkington's going to speak to us this morning uh, on those three things. Now, that was a setup for anybody uh, interested. But he was the only one giving a head nod. Actually, um, just so you guys know, uh, if you ever want to talk to uh, Dr. Tarkington during any sort of Joy Club event, uh, he is well more versed in things concerning uh, prophecy, things concerning tribulation, rapture. Uh, he's much more... Uh, to speed uh, than I am. And so there will probably be times, uh, there, I know that there's times where uh, that I'll ask him questions uh, because the subject that we're getting into is deep and wide and we only have about 30 minutes. And so we're not going to be able to get too deep, too wide. What I do want to tell you is I want to kind of uh, walk you through what the question is so that you can have a good idea of where we're going with the answer. The question that was on the table is, when will the rapture happen? Will it happen pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation? And what do we do with the millennium? What are the different views of the millennium? And so what I want to do is, uh, before I even open us in prayer, I want to share with you some, some technical things. So we call the tribulation the seven-year period of time uh, where the Antichrist is going to be doing his work. We go to the book of Daniel, and we find that the tribulation is going to be seven years long. There's going to be a three-and-a-half-year period. Well, excuse me, at the beginning of the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist is going to make peace with the whole world. And for three-and-a-half years, it seems that things are going to go relatively peaceful. Uh, and then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the wheels fall off, and the Antichrist breaks the covenant that he made of peace, and things go south in a hurry real quick for the last three-and-a-half years. So when we use the word tribulation, that's what we're referring to. When we use the word rapture, we're talking about the miraculous taking uh, of believers off of the earth to be with the Lord in heaven. You following me? So that's what we mean when we say the word rapture. And then when we use the word millennium, we're talking about a solid thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And so there's there's a thousand different views of all of those things. And instead of walking you through uh, over a semester, which it would take a college semester of three-hour classes to distinguish between the two groups, between the, the many different groups, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through a handful of scriptures, and I'm going to kind of lead you where I think that the Bible points with its most convincing argument, just to tell you that at this current time, this is where I am. I've been all over the map. Okay, and so this is one of those things where if, if you and I disagree, we're still going to be friends and we can still go out to Burger King after church or to the Heritage House and nothing's wrong. Like we all still believe in Christ. We all still believe that he's the way, the truth and the truth and the light and no one gets to the father through him. This is one of those things that we're we're uncertain about. This is actually one of those things where I think the bulk of the evidence points in a certain direction. But believe it or not, that's not the camp that I'm in. I'm in a slightly different camp than where most of the evidence, I think, points. And I'm going to give you the reason why I'm in the camp that I'm in. So hopefully nobody's confused. Hopefully that's a, a decent introduction. Let me open this in prayer and we'll get fired up. 
Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can be confident of his return. And Father, I thank you that we can have unity in him. And Father, I pray that as we begin to uh, kind of dissect this topic, Lord, I pray that you would guard our ears and our hearts uh, and our minds. And Lord, I pray that we would not uh, muddy the waters at all, but that we would make things in your word crystal clear. And Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So more than most messages, I'm going to try to stick to a a pretty good outline for the sake of time. And we're going to walk through probably 10 different scriptures all briefly. We're going to start out in the book of Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. There's no one good scripture for me to tell you to camp out in uh, and we'll go there the most. If I had to, if you're only going to turn to one scripture, go ahead and turn to Matthew 23. And we'll probably be in Matthew 23 and 24 uh, the most, but... For right now, we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, and this is verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man, verse 7, dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So, that make perfect sense to you guys? That's what the bulk of prophecy is like, right? It's, it's difficult language. You've got to figure out exactly what they're talking about. And I started with this scripture to encourage you. And you go, well, hurry up and get to it because it's pretty discouraging. Read the next verse. Verse 8. This is Daniel. He says this. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said... Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. And so I want you to find encouragement that Daniel's the one who has some of these visions. Daniel's the one who gets some of these revelations. And right on the heels of him getting him, getting them, he goes, Lord, I heard, but I don't understand. And so I want you to know that if prophecy gives you a headache, you're in good company. Because there are things that Daniel heard and didn't understand. And then on the heels of that, I want you to go over to Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, the disciples have already asked the question, who, what, when, where, and why? How's all of these, how are all of these things going to pan out? And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. And so... Before we go into any of this, I want you to know this. If the Father alone knows, and the angels don't know, and the Son of God doesn't know, don't put too much pressure on me to know. You with me? And don't put too much pressure on yourself that you should know without a shadow of a doubt. And if you hear someone stand in front of you and say, this is definitely how things are going to pan out, take them with a grain of salt. You with me? Because we don't know for sure. What we can do is we can go to God's word and we can kind of follow the trail. You remember E.T. when E.T. was dropping Reese's out of the front of the bicycle? That's the best we can do, right? We can follow a trail and then at the end we get to a point and we go, well, that's the best we can do. And we hopefully our system of interpretations is solid and and, and cohesive. And so now I want to go over to the book of John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, 
verses 1 through 3, Jesus makes a statement. And I want to start out with this because where I'm starting out is in something that we can all agree on. We can all agree that Jesus came to the earth, he died for our sins, and then he rose again. And we, as far as uh, Orthodox believers, we can all agree that Jesus said without a shadow of a doubt that he is coming back. So Jesus came the first time, we all agree. Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, we all agree. Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, said, I'm coming back again, and we can all agree on that. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So it's crystal clear, right? You don't have to be a rocket scientist or have a PhD in theology to understand that Jesus is coming back. And the last, the other one that I want to look at is in the book of Acts chapter 1. So a couple pages to your right. You pick up in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 says this. So when they had come together, they were asking him, that's they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so the Lord has already resurrected. He spent 40 days with them. This is about the end. And they said, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he said these things, this is verse 9, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, Two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So you following me? Jesus is getting ready to go into heaven. He's getting, 40 days is up. He's ascending back into heaven. And they go, All right, Jesus, is this it? Are you getting ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? And remember... Before Jesus even died on the cross, they were looking forward to Jesus instituting an earthly reign, right? They wanted him to take over Herod's throne. Just give me a little head nod, make sure we're all speaking the same language. They wanted him to take over Herod's throne. They wanted him to rule justly over Israel as the rightful heir to the throne of David. And so now Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He spent some time with the disciples, and now they go, all right, game time. Now you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know which time, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to receive power, and you're going to go into the world, and you're going to make disciples. And so from the Old Testament times until the time of Jesus, everybody thought Jesus was coming one time. You following me? So it's obvious that when you look at the life of the disciples, they didn't have a category for Jesus dying for their sins, raising from the dead, and then Jesus coming back a couple thousand years later, right? They thought the advent of Jesus was, okay, Jesus is born in a manger. He's going to put Israel where it needs to be. So they didn't have a good perspective and they didn't have a good timeline. And I want to show you something. Uh, You see that cross that sits on that windowsill? If I were to come down here... And if I were to get the angle just right about, if I were to stand right here, 
I would bet you money that that cross was actually sitting on the red cloth of the pulpit. You see? You've always seen people go to Washington, D.C., and they want to put their finger on top of the Washington Monument. It's all perspective. You know how the whole thing works. They're not really up there. They're not giants, and the Washington Monument's not small. But when you're here, it looks like the cross is on the table. And so what they saw was they saw Jesus was coming. They see the cross. They didn't realize that Jesus was coming here. And then they didn't realize that there was all of this space in between Jesus coming again. And so what we call this is that it's obviously perspective, but they saw one Jesus and there's actually Jesus coming twice. They didn't realize that. And so what they missed was what we call the age of the church, the church age. We call this also the time of the Gentiles. That's what scripture calls it. Uh, also, you can call this uh, Israel's rejection. Okay. Everybody with me? All right. Let's keep going. If you were to... Uh, if you were to ask somebody who was really smart, much smarter than I, how do you figure out which camp you should be in? Should you be a pre-tribulation guy, a mid-tribulation guy, post-tribulation guy? Where should you stand on the millennium? All of it boils down to how you interpret Old Testament prophecies. Okay? There's not just one or two key texts that you go to and you go, aha. There's a whole system of biblical interpretation that goes into any view. And so you may think, well, I believe Jesus is going to come back before the tribulation because of this. I just want to, as nicely as I can say, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. It's fine if you do that, but just know there's a lot more that goes into it than just picking which camp you want to be in. So you don't have to go there, but over in the book of Zechariah, there's a prophecy. And this is a pretty clear-cut, simple prophecy. It's Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. And it says, Then the Lord, hopefully you know Zechariah is an Old Testament book, and he's making a prophecy about the Lord. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And here's, here's where the prophecy is. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And then in verse 5 it says, You will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountain will reach to this other town and you're going to flee from the army because Jesus' feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. The mountain's going to split and he's going to give you a way of retreat through the mountains. And so there's a lot of biblical scholars who look at that verse and they say that hasn't happened yet because the Mount of Olives right now is in one piece. Jesus hasn't stood there and the mountain split in half. And so part of the train of thought and what I'm going to hopefully convince you of is that we need to take biblical prophecy literally. And this literally hasn't happened yet. So there has to be a point in history when this is going to happen. And the belief is, is that this is going to happen just prior to the millennium at the end of the tribulation. So now that we've, we've said that, I want you to go over to the book of Romans, chapter 11. And when you do your quiet time for the sake of time... Uh, I want you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 all do with what is the Lord up to with the nation of Israel right now, right? Why does Israel look the way that it looks? Why does the church look the way that it looks? And why are they incompatible with each other? What's the Lord up to? I thought God had a specific plan for Israel, but right now they don't look like us. And that question's answered in Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
And so Paul in Romans 11.25 says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be informed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so you remember this time between the cross and Jesus coming again? That period of time is called the time of the Gentiles. That's when a hardening of the Israel's heart has taken place. And then if you go down to verse 28, it says, From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are the beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. And so all of that reading and all of that explanation to say that right now during the time of the Gentiles, during this period of time right here, there's a hardening of the hearts of Israel. And so God has hardened their hearts of the Israel people in order to bring in the Gentiles. And then at the end of times, God is going to deal primarily with Israel to get them back where they need to be. Okay? And so God started out with Israel by calling Abraham. They were God's chosen people all the way up to the time of Jesus. Jesus is born to the nation of Israel. Jesus begins his ministry and the nation of Israel rejects Jesus. Then God continues to harden the hearts of the Israel people while he brings the Gentiles in. And then before he closes down shop, before he closes the earth down, he's going to deal again with the nation of Israel in a way that's unique. And so I want you to know that it gets confusing. It gets worrisome as far as how's this whole thing work together? And I just want to ask you this question. If you think that it's confusing and doesn't make sense, you're in good shape. You're in good company. And I just want you to don't, uh, don't think less of God because the whole thing is confusing. How about you try bringing the world to an end? Right? I mean, have you ever thought of how you would go about bringing the world to an end and give everybody a fair shot along the way? I got no idea how to do it. I've got no idea how to gracefully bow out with this earth, giving everybody a chance, and then creating a new earth. It's, it's definitely out of each of our pay grade. And so if you go over to the book of Thessalonians, there's a verse that we read oftentimes at funerals. And we're moving quickly, hopefully for the sake of time. This is the verse that we read at funerals oftentimes at the graveside for encouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this is encouraging because it means that those who have died are still going to be resurrected and be with the Lord, and you who and I who are on this earth, possibly when Christ comes back, we're going to be with the Lord also. And so somehow, 
at some point in time, people on the earth are going to be taken to be with the Lord and people in the ground are going to be taken to be with the Lord also. But he keeps going in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Now as to the times and epochs, brother, you have no need of anything to be written you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So when is it going to happen? When is this thing called the rapture going to happen? It's going to come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. And so as you read this scripture, you find that Christ is going to come back like a thief in the night. I don't know if you've been robbed at night, but if you were ready when the thief came, you wouldn't have gotten robbed, okay? Any of you who have had a wife that's pregnant, you know that things can go from zero to 60 real quick. Like everything's cool, everything's fine, you're enjoying your day, and all of a sudden she stops in her tracks and you might as well cancel all your plans for the next week because the baby's here, right? You all been there? And he says, that's how Christ is going to come back. Everything's going to be cool. Everybody's going to think everything's fine. And then, bam, here he is. You've got to deal with him. You go over to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. And while you're headed over to the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 12, I want to reiterate in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, there's a little passage that says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so from interpreting this passage, a lot of people, I being one of them, interpret it to mean that God hasn't destined you and I as believers in Christ to suffer his wrath. Like You have been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, so you don't have to endure the wrath of God. Keep that in mind when we go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. This is the sixth seal. Sixth, number six, with a T-H on the end. It's that seal, and he says... In verse 12, chapter 6, I looked and broke this, and when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That sound like a pretty good time? All right, doesn't really sound like a good time. Then, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Listen to this. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come and who is able to stand? And so what you find is that in the book of Revelation, after um, 
after Jesus gives his messages to the seven churches, then seals begin to be opened, trumpets begin to blow, bowls begin to be fulfilled, and all of this is God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And coming from an interpretation in the book of Thessalonians, saying that you and I were not created for wrath. And so I just want to kind of say, so that we're all on the same sheet of music, people disappearing from the earth is weird, right? Like, to think that all of us as followers of Christ one day are just going to be here one second and be gone the next, that's really strange to me. But the Bible paints that perfectly clear. And so now we go back to the book of Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 24 and 25... This is where the bulk of Jesus' prophetic passages come from when he talks about how things are going to pan out at the end of the world. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so when you read chapters 24 and 25, keep in mind that All of those discourses come on the heels of the disciples asking those three questions. When, what, and how? And so Jesus says, listen. He says to a Jewish audience, if someone tells you that they see me after I'm gone, they're lying to you. Right? Don't believe them. He says, this is the sign of my coming. When I come, the sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. This is in verse 29. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the heavens are going to be shaken, and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That matches up perfectly with what the angel said in the book of Acts, right? When he said the Son of Man is going to come exactly like he left. Like, that makes sense. And so Jesus is going to come, and it's going to be painfully obvious when he comes, because the sun will have already been darkened, and the moon's going to give its light. Not going to give its light. Right? But the scripture also says that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. So let's just be reasonable here for a minute. If you walked outside right now, and the sun had turned to blood, and the moon wasn't giving its light you would think as a reasonable human being, I bet Jesus is coming soon. I need to be ready, wouldn't you? You would say that this is definitely a weird chain of events. I need to be ready. Even a monkey could understand that, right? I get it. But as Jesus goes on, he says in verse 36, nobody knows the day. He says, for the coming, verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 40, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And so... At this point, I want to tell you that I used to be in the camp that said Jesus is going to come back at the end of the tribulation, just prior to the millennium. Like That's where I used to be. But there's so many passages that say he's going to come like a thief in the night. Two people are going to be in a field. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. Two women are going to be at a mill. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. There's too many of those Jesus is coming like a thief in the night passages for me to say that that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Because there's too many telltale signs. 
You've got to know when the tribulation is going on because it's a time unlike any other time. And Jesus tells us to be prepared because you don't know when he's coming so many times that that puts me in the camp that says he's got to come back either at the beginning of the tribulation or at least before the wrath of God gets poured out on the earth in the tribulation. So if you've noticed, I don't fit comfortably in any one of those spots, but I'm somewhere now in between those two places that I don't believe that you're going to fall into the wrath of God. And so I want you to see over and over and over again that there's passages that say, there's a passage about the, um, the wise slave. Blessed is the slave who Jesus, or who the king finds doing good when he's gone. And so there's a couple parables about the king comes... He gives out responsibilities, and then the king leaves. And then the king comes back at an hour which nobody knows to hopefully find his people being faithful. Okay. So then you go over to the book of Titus, and this is the last scripture verse that we've got in Titus. And we'll tie everything together. This is kind of the the last nail in the coffin, if you will, for me being someone who thinks that the tribulation, excuse me, that the rapture is going to happen at the beginning or onset of the tribulation. This is in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. This is Paul writing to a young man. And he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We understand, we understand that. Verse 12, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. We got that too, right? The grace of God has appeared. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and all those things. And then look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so you find that when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, Timothy, uh, the grace of God has appeared. It's instructed you to be godly, to get away from lawlessness. And also, we're looking forward to the revealing of Jesus Christ, right? If you're looking forward to the revealing of Jesus Christ and he's coming after the tribulation is over, I would be warning people to be on guard for when the tribulation comes so that they could make preparations, okay? But he doesn't. It seems that Paul is telling, excuse me, Titus, that listen, the next thing on God's calendar is for him to come back and to get his church. And that's what Jesus instructs us all throughout his life. Be ready, be ready, be ready, for you don't know when the hour is. And listen, if there was a man who rose up and he was able to sign a covenant or a treaty and he was able to make world peace, I would easily put my finger on that guy as the Antichrist. And three and a half years in, when that man who was trusted, who made peace with the whole world, when he broke that promise... And he began, to, he began to unleash all sorts of calamity on the earth. We would easily identify that man as the Antichrist because of all the biblical facts you have. And we're not told to be on guard for all of those things. We're told to be on guard for the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so, preacher, where are you? I don't know exactly where I am, but I'm somewhere on the front end before God pours out his wrath on the earth. Where are you, preacher, when it comes to the millennium? And why do we even need a millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ? Well, it seems like that through the tribulation, God is going to use that time to bring judgment on the earth, and He's going to use that time to bring Israel back into a right relationship with Him. Right? Because Israel is not going to be raptured off of the earth because they don't believe in Jesus Christ right now. 
There's a remnant of them that do. But as a whole, the national Israel is lost right now. God's going to use the tribulation to bring them back into a covenant relationship with himself. And then it seems that after the whole tribulation is over, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That's in Revelation chapter 20. And it seems that national Israel, as well as some believers who will be resurrected, will get to enjoy a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth before the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and you get a new heaven and new earth. That's what it seems like is going to happen. And so I didn't give you a timeline on paper because I didn't want you to stick to it too closely because I, I haven't... I'm not rigid enough to, to be able to put everything into a timeline, but hopefully that gives you some idea of rapture, tribulation, and millennium. Does it all make sense? Somehow the world's got to come to an end, and this just happens to be the way that God is choosing to do it. Am I 100% confident of everything that I shared with you? Uh, I'm confident that God says it all, I'm not confident it's going to work its way out the way that I interpreted it, but that's my best shot. Uh, Wednesday night, we'll enjoy a time of fellowship where we can all uh, have some conversation about it. But for right now, we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. I've got a passage to read you before we get into the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be over in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And I just want to, if you're a visitor here, if you uh, don't come here very often, I just want to remind you that the Lord's table uh, has been set apart for those who have put their faith in Christ already, whose sins have been forgiving, and they're living in a right relationship with Him, not in any sort of known sin. So there obviously needs to be a time of reflection before you take of the elements. Uh, all of that is in the book of 1 Corinthians that normally we walk through. But there's two different ways that you can take the Lord's Supper. Oftentimes, you take the Lord's Supper as looking back to the Lord's Supper when he had it with his disciples, the Last Supper or the Passover. There's also a way of looking at the Lord's Supper where you take the Lord's Supper looking forward to something, okay? And here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 4, that's what we want to do today. Revelation chapter 19, verse 4 says this, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sea of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So brothers and sisters, wherever you fall when it comes to the tribulation and the rapture and the millennium, there's something that we can be confident of. When the new heavens and the new earth are brought together, we, the church, are going to be reunited or united with Christ for good. We, the church, are his bride, and there's going to be a big meal in heaven. Okay? It's going to be a big meal. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and anyone who's put their faith in Christ is going to be at that meal. It's kind of like a reception dinner after a wedding. And so we want to take the Lord's Supper, looking forward to us having gained victory over sin through Christ, and we'll share this meal together 
And the passages that I'll read pertaining to the bread and the juice hopefully will fall in line with that really well. And so now we'll prepare the table. All right, so the stage has been set, right? You've already had your tribulation. You've already had your rapture at some point. You've already had your millennium. Now the new heaven and new earth have come down. And we're all, as believers in Christ, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we've already experienced victory over sin. Every eye is, every tear has been wiped away. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. There's no more death. And so this is a joyful dinner, right? Just like at the last good wedding you went to. So everybody's excited to be there. You're excited for the couple that's been joined together. That's the church and Christ. That's us. And I don't think it would be weird for us to think during that meal to look over at Christ and realize that he paid for everything with his, with his body. And so you've got a verse in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. And so when you have the bread and you're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he, and, and you're not looking at this mournfully, now you're happy. You're victorious because the lamb has, has come and conquered. Because he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes we were healed. And so as you take the bread, I want you to take it. Thinking of that day when we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you'll look across the table, and you'll realize that the bread that you're partaking was because of what He has already accomplished. Take the bread. So, we talked about when we took the bread that there will probably be an aspect of enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb where you look over at the Lamb whose body was crushed for our iniquities. And then... uh, you will be overwhelmed probably with a sense of gratefulness for what the Lamb accomplished with His body on your behalf. And then there's another aspect, I believe, of the marriage supper of the Lamb that is not just being grateful for something, but this. This is in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. It's the parable of the talents. For it is just like a man about to go on his journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his own journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. As you all know, the one who had uh, one talent and buried it was cast out. And so only those who were given talents and did something with them were, were approved of. And so at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be an aspect of you being grateful for Christ and what He has done for you. And then, just like you have a betrothal period for a wedding or an engagement period, then you have the wedding... Then you have the reception dinner right after the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb being a lot like a reception dinner. After the wedding, the bride and groom run away to a honeymoon period, and we frequently say that that's when they will begin to live happily ever after. And so there's a period of time now where we've been entrusted with talents, we've been entrusted with things, and Christ is gone. 
And when he comes back and he finds us faithful, we'll be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then listen to this at the end of this parable. It says, After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And this is, I think, an aspect that will happen at the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so, on one hand, I see the marriage supper of the Lamb as a gateway of us all being together in unity. And I think that at the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are overwhelmed with gratitude for what Christ has done for us. But I think it's also a time for Christ to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with this. Now I'm going to entrust you with more. Enter into the joy of your master. And so, let's drink together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing our closing hymn. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves. You did not forget about us, but you have meticulously mapped out how you're going to bring everything to an end. And Father, you have meticulously made sure that we know that you're going to take perfect care of us. Father, I pray that we would indeed be ready. I pray that we would be ready for the hour that no one knows, that when you come, that we'll be found faithful. And Lord, I pray that when we enjoy that marriage supper of the Lamb with you, Lord, I pray that you will have found us faithful. And Lord, we look forward to the joy of entering into our rest with you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with us for our closing song.